The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. My name is Olivia Bahemuka, and I have the privilege of reading the scripture for us. Um, it's from, taken from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Uh, Follow with me. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might Reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Olivia. Good morning, everybody. So uh, today uh, is historically in the life of our church, the Sunday after Labor Day weekend, uh, what we call Vision Sunday. And uh, today's vision is to lean into the busted up beloved church that God calls every church to be. So uh, that might sound like an unusual uh, focus, but it is our focus today, and uh, I hope to persuade you to come along uh, in that vision uh, as we look ahead to the next year ahead of us. So, so coming out of the last two and a half years especially, the state of churches in general does not always feel great. Uh, Lifeway Research Group recently did a study Uh, in which they heard pastors everywhere saying that the most significant struggle that they have is disunity uh, inside their churches. Uh, The Barna organization, also specializing in church-based research, uh, says that there are more churches now than ever uh, experiencing political division, bickering, and distrust among its members. Um, Now, that may, at least on the surface, present a um, a glaring weakness in the body of Christ and the family of God. 
Uh, I was in a conversation the other day with a few folks about a church that uh, came on the scene in St. Louis, Missouri when Todd Teller, David Filson, Kevin Twitt, and several others from our community were studying at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, preparing to be pastors. And it's a church called New City Fellowship. And one of the things that struck me when I visited New City Fellowship's website was that one of its core values this is what a lot of churches do. They list their core values. We have, we have some core values ourselves, God, people, places, and things. But the core values listed among the core values of this particular church was the value of weakness. We value weakness. We desire to live in weakness. And no doubt this had a lot to do with the social situation uh, into which that particular community was planted, which is among mostly underserved communities in the city of St. Louis, where weakness is a theme of life. But also theologically, uh, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 about how how he has come to delight in things like weakness, insults, persecutions, hardships, and difficulties. For when we're weak, then we're strong. That's when the power of God tends to come through. It might be that the leadership of this church that named as one of its core values the value of weakness, it might be that they had been reading Bonhoeffer's masterpiece about Christian community called Life Together. Here's an excerpt from from that book, which, which indicates that uh, what feels like weakness is often a sign of strength, and we don't even realize it. So in Life Together, Bonhoeffer wrote this, "...only a community which faces disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight. Only God knows the real state of our fellowship." What may appear weak and trifling to us may be great and glorious to God. So, so this weak and trifling reality was characteristic of Jews and Gentiles that Paul is addressing here in Ephesians chapter 2 uh, back at that time. And what we learn from texts like this is something that, that Drew Holcomb and the neighbors have sung about how you've got to fight for love. You've got to fight for love. Everything worth having is worth fighting for, including love. And so Ephesians 2 provides a blueprint for this. And there are, there are three points that I'd like to highlight from Ephesians 2 today. First, in Christ, enmity should itself always be considered the enemy. And secondly, in Christ, we are cemented to each other, like it or not. And then finally, in Christ, making peace is mandatory, not optional. So first, in Christ, enmity should always be considered the enemy. So Satan's method is to stir up strife. Satan's method is to stir up division and uh, hostility, as, as the Jew-Gentile divide is described as here. He loves to attack, discredit, accuse, and spin, but he especially loves to work through people to attack, discredit, accuse, and spin 
while hiding in the background, trying to help people forget that He even exists. Now, Jesus' method, to the contrary to that, is to love one another, but, but, but He also takes it, Jesus does, famously to a whole new level when He says, don't just love each other, love your enemies even. You know, think about what Judas was referred to by Jesus in their last conversation before Judas betrayed Jesus and then went off to his own tragic death. What does he say to Judas even? Friend, friend, do what you came to do. Commit the betrayal that you came to commit. Friend. So, the presenting issue in Ephesians 2 is this. There's a long-standing division between two groups of people. Uh, it's a socio-political conflict. It's an ethnic conflict. Uh, it's all kinds of conflict between one group, the Jews, and another group, the Gentiles. And words to describe the dynamic between them that Paul uses here includes words like being aliens to each other, strangers, far off, having no hope and without God, and dividing walls of hostility, which have a vertical dimension, the hostility that exists between a holy God and sinful people until Jesus sweeps in and accomplishes reconciliation and peace between a holy God and sinful people, and then a horizontal dimension that, that flows out of the vertical dimension where, where people who are reconciled to God, who are, as it says here, in Christ, also work toward becoming one with one another. And the charge here is in verse 16, and it's simply this. Kill the hostility. This isn't just for church communities, by the way. This is for marriages. This is for the workplace. This is for friendships. This is for neighbor relationships. This is for international relationships. Kill the hostility is a centerpiece to Christian life in the world. You know, Christianity insists that personal holiness and personal sanctification will always lead to social holiness and social sanctification. The two are inseparable, loving God, loving neighbor. Jesus put them together. So, there's this political cartoonist named Tim Kreider, and at one point he was reflecting on how he had once been a relentless critic of a certain political party in his journalism. And he said this as he reflect back. He said, I was professionally furious, which essentially means I was paid to be outraged and to stir others up to be outraged. I was professionally furious. That was the purpose of my job, to be furious and to incite fury. I was professionally furious every week for eight years. And yet, looking back at my work from those years, even I am struck by its tone, by my own tone, of shrill, unrelieved rancor. No wonder readers who met me in real life seemed surprised to learn that I was actually personable and polite. Kreider is the one who later termed uh, the phrase or coined the phrase uh, outrage porn. You've probably heard that. You've probably read about it. Um, and, and, and he describes outrage porn as this, this dynamic where, where we are on the hunt. We are on the lookout 
to find something and somebody to be offended by so that we can position ourselves as victims and martyrs. That's what outrage porn is. The gospel says no to this. And he says one of the warning signs, Paul does right here, one of the warning signs that we're heading in the direction of outrage porn is what you call negative caricature of other people and other people groups. And there's some name-calling here that Paul refers to. He says, those of you who are uncircumcised refer to Gentiles as the uncircumcision. Now, this was a pejorative term, a lot like Marxist and fascists. Feel familiar? Similar vibe. Where, where, we, where we take either real or perceived flaws in other individuals and in other communities, and we, we reduce those individuals and those communities down to our real and or perceived perspective on their flaws. We turn them into the worst things about them. That becomes their identity. It's all over the political landscape, of course, as we know. We're, we're, we're exaggerating the, the, the positive features of whoever it is that we're behind, and we're exaggerating the negative features of whoever it is that we're against politically and otherwise. The Jews and Gentiles specialized at reducing each other in these, in these ways. And, and, and you know, interestingly, when, when Paul talks about the dividing wall of hostility in verse 14, uh, he's referring to a social dynamic between these two people groups, the, the Jews and the Gentiles, but he's also referring to an actual inscription that was there at this time in the temple courtyard in Jerusalem warning Gentiles on this inscription that they would only have themselves to blame for their death if they passed beyond the inscription into the inner courts of the temple where only ethnic, circumcised Jewish people were allowed. Now, who's the author of this text? But the Apostle Paul, who 20 years prior was Saul of Tarsus, who could have actually been the one to write this inscription and set it up in the temple. But something changed when the dividing wall of hostility was removed between Jesus Christ and Saul of Tarsus, making him the Apostle Paul, who then became not only an ambassador to the world for Jesus Christ, but especially to the Gentile world, as we see in this letter, which is written mostly to Gentiles. You know, Paul uh, the Apostle had once prayed along with his fellow rabbis prayers like this, thank you, my God, that I am not a woman, that I am not a slave, that I am not a Gentile which is code for thank you that I am superior, thank you that I am special, thank you that I am elite, thank you that I am above and better than, thank you that I'm not only your chosen person, I'm your choice person among your choice people. God doesn't have choice people. He has chosen people, but He does not have any choice people. 
You know, at the end of his life, Paul looks back on his past and he said, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. But I, even I, received mercy. Even I experienced what it means to have that dividing wall of hostility that I created with God, torn down by God so that I could be at one with God. And specialize for the rest of my life in loving Gentiles and in showing hospitality and humility toward Gentiles. You know, the Holy Spirit has redirected the hostility of the heart of Saul of Tarsus, turning him into the Apostle Paul to kill sin, not sinners. There's a reason why we memorialize King, but not Malcolm X, with a holiday. King was all about taking people who were against him and pulling him onto his side and saying, let's attack the problem of hostility together, as opposed to the, let's burn the house down, let's take them down, let's fight power with power and take over power. But what happens when that happens? You just have another new group of Sinful people exerting power over people that they have overthrown and toppled. I don't mean to get political here, but it's in the human heart. It's also a human heart thing. It's an anthropological problem before it is a political problem. It's a theological problem before it's a political problem. But what does King do, even as an agitator of the unjust status quo of his time, He says things like, violence can't drive out violence. Hate can't drive out hate. Only love can drive these things out. Only a better vision for how to be together can drive these things out. And now we have a holiday. Remembering not only the man, but the vision. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off, specifically y'all who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, Jews and Gentiles alike, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In Christ, enmity becomes the enemy. We do not wrestle, Paul will write later on in Ephesians, with flesh and blood. We wrestle with powers and principalities that masquerade as human problems, but they're really more deeply a spiritual problem. Secondly, in Christ, we are cemented to each other, like it or not. Every Christian is forever inseparable from every other Christian, no exception. Notice the progression here. Paul uses three metaphors to describe the relationship between those who are in Christ, including Jews and Gentiles. But now in Christ, Jesus Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, creating in Himself one new humanity in place of the two, killing the hostility. For through Him we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one Spirit to the Father. We are no longer strangers and aliens, but 
fellow citizens with the saints. One nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. It's a glorious, virtuous endeavor that has never been accomplished by any nation on earth. It's never been achieved. It's always and only been aspirational for human institutions, but not for Christ. There is one nation under God. The the thing is, it encompasses people from all nations and all tribes and all languages. There is one nation under God that is truly indivisible with liberty and justice held out to all. 1 Peter 2.9, Christians from all generations, nationalities, ethnicities, and ideologies are, according to Peter, together a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Behold your true country. Behold your lasting country. Behold your one and only enduring king and kingdom. Fellow citizens, but also members of God's household. We're not just part of the same nation. We are family. We are daughters and sons. We are brothers and sisters. We are fathers and mothers. That's what we are in Christ together. So, here's what this means in practical terms. A Christian millennial from Belmede is more closely and tightly related to a Christian grandma from Africa or Iran than he is to his own siblings who are without Christ. Let that sink in for a second. A Christian millennial from Belmede who only speaks English is more vitally and familiarly connected to a Christian 81-year-old woman who's never spoken English from Africa or Iran than he is to his own siblings that he carpools to school with every single day who are without Christ. Behold your first and only lasting family. Even marriage, except the marriage between Christ and His bride, the church, will not exist anymore in glory. We're told that in the Scriptures. And then, an even deeper union, a temple in the Lord. All bricks cemented together in the Lord with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. So, uh, it is... Um, without question and undebatable that the U.S. Open tennis tournament is the greatest sporting event in the world, okay? And uh, my wife, Patty, will tell you that I've logged hours and hours and hours and hours, and one of the folks in the 830 service sends me this text this morning of a picture of him and his wife uh, uh, with, the, with the, the men's semifinals in the background. They were actually there, and my response to him is, I love you and I hate you. Uh, and he's like, we should go together next time. And I'm like, all in, you pay. And, and so it's the greatest thing, but we're, we're watching tennis on our back porch. We have this little TV set up on our, our back porch. It's lovely. 
and I was just noticing the bricks on the side of our house, and, and like Christ Pres used to be before we covered it all in paint, nine different kinds of bricks. These bricks are different colors, different textures, etc., and, and I was just looking at these two bricks that were right next to each other, and I thought to myself, if those bricks were humans, they've been cemented together all these years since 1992. And then Ephesians 2, which has been on the mind, popped into my mind, wait a minute, eureka moment, Ephesians 1.4, the chapter before this one, since we are in Christ and Christ is in us, we have been cemented to each other, not since 1992, but since before the creation of the world. And we will never be uncemented. We will always be adjacent. We will always be connected. We will always be glued together. You know, almost 30 years of pastoral ministry now, and I can tell you that there is a pattern. You know, I've been invited. This is one of the sacred parts of what I get to do is you get invited into the, the most joyous and the most excruciating experiences of people's lives. And you get, you, you get invited as the imperfect human that you are to walk alongside people in those situations, hopefully with the wisdom and hope of God as your armor for that. And over the years, I've, I've walked alongside a lot of marriages that were on the brink of splitting up. And when they come to you, they, they, they usually come during a season that, to, to borrow the words from Bonhoeffer, feel weak and trifling to them. And what I often say, especially if I sense that both the husband and wife want to fight and are ready to fight for love but just don't know how, and they're looking for help, but if both of them come as willing parties into that situation, almost always I will tell them it may not feel this way, it does not feel this way, but it very well could be that your marriage is stronger right now than it's ever been. Because right now you are both triggered to deal with the unhealth that is in you. And when people deal under Christ with the, with the unhealth that is in them, they almost always, and in fact, if they stay submitted to the process, they always end up becoming more glued together and more tethered than they've ever been before. And, and, and in fact, they become that way not in spite of this season of conflict, but precisely because of it. You know, this is true of communities as well. We've never really experienced the fullness and the riches of Christ-centered, Christ-united ministering community until we've been through it with somebody or through it with a group of somebodies where apologies and forgiveness and reconciliation and the restoration of peace and joy have been a process and have been a thing. Yet too many people, too many Christians, and I've, I've done this before myself, peace out on community right when the opportunity to really grow up begins. 
I mean, it's a travesty. That's one of the liabilities of, having, of living in a city with a church on every corner. I can just hop over here until the next conflict, and then I'll hop over here until the next time I get irritated, and then I'll hop over here until the next time I feel embarrassed, and then I'll hop over here, and then over here, and over here. There could be a benefit to there just being one church in your hometown, and that's not our situation. But the philosophy of Eugene Peterson might be helpful when, when somebody asks him, how do, I, how do I know where to go to a church? How, how do I know what church to belong to? And he says, pick one and stay there. That's how. It may feel reductionistic until you think about all the implications of that. But if we are willing to pour out all we've got, which we should be, to fight for a delicate marriage, which we know from the Scriptures is a temporary relationship, why would we not also be eager to fight for relationships that have, have been said to be tethered together forever, cemented together forever? In New York Times, this was years ago, Tim Keller shared this with, with some of our staff you know, decades ago, but it still applies. There's this New York Times article called God Decentralized. You can Google it. It's there. You don't have to pay a subscription for it because it's an old article. But it talks about how there was this spiritual hunger, this deep spiritual hunger that was emerging around the American landscape. Everybody wanted to be spiritual. I think it was at the, the, the advent of, of, of what we now know as the New Age movement. But, but, it, but it also said that there's also a movement for non-institutional religion. Instead, in other words, I want to be spiritual, or maybe I want to be connected to Jesus, but not to an institution, not to a body, not to a, not to a church, not to a covenant with others. And when, when asked on a survey, true or false, it can be fine and good to be deeply connected to Jesus but not deeply connected to a church, 81% of people on that survey answered, yeah, that's right. That's right. But here's the thing. There are a lot of religions that will serve that purpose, that will allow you to be as individual and isolated as you want to be and as curated as you want to be. In your, you, you can do only the songs you like, you can read only the books you want to read, listen to only the messages you want to listen to from only the speakers that you want to listen to. You can completely curate your own individual version of, of, of several religions. It just so happens that Christianity is not one of them. You know, the, the, the passage before this, verses 1 through 10 is about being spiritual. You were dead in your transgressions, but God made you alive through Christ. But what's the first word? Let, just Bible quiz, who was listening the best to the Scripture reading? What was the very first word of our Scripture reading today? Anyone? Therefore. On the basis of your individual, personalized, very intimate relationship with Christ, which is part of Christianity, therefore, church. Therefore, institutional religion. Therefore, organized community. Therefore, accountability. Therefore, togetherness. Therefore, cemented bricks. Inseparable. Interesting, New York was, was sort of the hotbed for this individualized, personalized version of Christianity until 21 years ago today when 9-11 happened. And the church that we were part of the church that I had the privilege of serving there 
On September 10th, 2001, it had 2,000 people. On September 12th, it had 5,000 people. No human heart can escape the need for community. We, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we can go it alone. We can deceive ourselves that we are a rock and we're an island with all due respect to Simon and Garfunkel. We, we, can, we can try to do that for a while until we can't. Why is solitary confinement the most dreaded punishment among those who are incarcerated? Because we're not made to be alone. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. But for what? That word power is literally the Greek word dynamis. We get our word dynamite from that. The, pow- the gospel is the dynamite of God. For what? For salvation, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. First for us, then for them, so that there is no more them and we're all in us. That's the power. The power of God leads to community. And this is the paradox. What, what, part of what brings out the very best in individuals is, is when we spot the very worst in each other because, it, again, it invites us into, like, Jesus activity. Confession, repentance, renewal, reconciliation. Peace. He Himself is our peace. He doesn't just give us peace. He is our peace. And He's in us. And we're in Him. You know, Christians who self-amputate from other Christians at the first sign of conflict miss an opportunity for personal and social sanctification and holiness. It's not something you want to miss out on. It's something you want to be there for on the other side. And finally, and very briefly, in making, in Christ, making peace is mandatory. It's not optional. Verse 10, just one verse before this passage, we are His workmanship. We're not our own workmanship. We don't stand on the Word of God as much as we stand under it. The Word of God does not exist to be revised and edited. It exists to revise and edit us. We don't do surgery on it. It does surgery on us. It's what the Anglican community calls His saving health. God comes at us. It's called the sword of His Spirit, but, it, but, but really that sword functions more like a scalpel for the people of God. It's surgical, not punitive, for those who are in Christ. Making peace. We are His workmanship. We belong to Him. We, we, we quote the Heidelberg Catechism sometimes in our liturgy, which, which begins, my only hope in life and in death is that I belong not to myself, but body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, this, this word in, in verse 10 for workmanship describing the people of God is poema. We get our word poem from that. Poetry. We are poetry in process. So, so what if the musicians led us through a song, but only partially? Come ye sinners poor, and, okay, let us pray. Like that would be frustrating, right? Because we, we feel our need for what's coming. We, we feel our need for the tension to be relieved through the, through the resources of the gospel. And if it's cut off, we're, we're missing the whole poem. All of us are like that 
unfinished song, you guys, which, which is compulsion for us to give grace to one another and also to ourselves that we are in process, but also motivation to keep growing toward our goal and toward our destination of becoming more like Christ. You know, I've shared with you before that this, you know, two pastors walk into a bar, true story of, of another pastor and me, uh, a, a former colleague in another church of mine, we walk into this bar thinking we're going to, you know, settle our differences, etc., and we end up yelling at each other in front of a bunch of our neighbors, which is just a really great way to advertise Christianity to your neighbors. There's two pastors getting into a fight over beers. He knocks on my office door the next day, and I'm like, oh no, here we go, round three. And he says, Scott, I've been thinking, I've been praying, and all I've got to say to you right now is Philippians 1.6. I am confident that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, and I hope you are thinking and praying the same concerning me. From that moment, we still have so much not in common, but from that moment, we became warm friends. All it took was for one of us to renounce his feelings and elevate, his, specifically his toxic feelings, and elevate Scripture, while the other of us, me, was renouncing Scripture and elevating my toxic feelings. And he comes in with the dynamite of God, and my toxic feelings are not a rival. They're no rival for the dynamite of God that brings Jews and Gentiles together and you know, suburban kids from Atlanta and lifetime New York, Brooklyn Italians under Christ together. The reason why Christians move toward each other instead of cutting their losses, he himself is our peace, and he's broken down in his flesh the dividing walls of hostility. Listen to this, Hebrews chapter 12, it's written to a fractured church. Look to Jesus, don't look to your conflict that's a dead-end street. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him, the joy being the vision of every nation, tribe, and tongue, Revelation 7, gathered around the throne of God, looking to Jesus continually together, cemented to one another. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, making enmity the enemy. Turning strangers into friends, and friends into family, family into bricks and mortar. For the, end, for the ancient of days, world without end. The cross of Christ was Jesus getting amputated from the everlasting union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so that you and I could be cemented into and with the Trinity and with one another. You know, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we, we walk into this building as individual cells, but you realize we take out of this place, all of us, from a common loaf of bread and from a common bottle of wine or, or juice, as the case may be. 
we come in individuals and, 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 and we go out carrying from the same thing inside our bodies as a picture of how we have been cemented together in Christ. And so, let us never forget, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Himself is our peace. Let our life together reflect this, this reality that there is no better fight than the fight for love, but we got to fight for it.